Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Better Off. Kevin Mitnick, the author of The Art of Invisibility. Kevin spent five years in jail for hacking. Yeah, this was a guy who made hacking famous before the Russians did. How are you going to protect yourself in this brave new world? Kevin Mitnick has some answers. You can't really protect your social security number, your date of birth. Too many people have it. But what you can do, at least from a financial perspective, a money perspective, go log into your bank account, log into your credit cards, and put on an alert. Anytime there's a transaction over 10 bucks, send me a text message, send me an email. So that way, if somebody is misusing your bank account or your credit card, you know right away. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. I'm your host, Jill Schlesinger, and this week we've got a really terrific guest, Kevin Mitnick. Now, I was a little suspect of this guy. You know why? I don't usually interview convicted felons. This guy spent five years in a federal prison. Why? Because he was a hacker. And he didn't even hack to get your money or your information. He did it for fun, essentially, just to kind of blow holes through security systems. Kevin did his time, and he's come out, and on the other side of that experience has become essentially an expert on how to protect yourself against people like him. He works for big companies. He's worked for the government before. Kevin Mitnick, The Art of Invisibility, is his new book, and he's going to help us learn how to better protect ourselves in an age where hacking can come from your next-door neighbor and from someone in Russia. And stay tuned after the interview. We'll hear from you, the listener question of the week. If you have a question, shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com and we'll arrange to get you on the air. And now our interview with Kevin Mitnick. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the interview segment. I love it because we are about to scare the living daylights out of you. We've got author, hacker, um, personality, Kevin Mitnick. He's just written a book called The Art of Invisibility. By the way, it says you're the world's most famous hacker. Is that, wait a second, is that like some prize that you win? Is it like the people best dressed list? World's greatest hacker? Yeah, I was made the example originally back in the uh, 1990s. And uh, because of the example and because of uh, what transpired during early things in my case, it became very, very well known. So then the media has actually given me that title. Nice. I, didn't act- I didn't claim that title. They gave it to me. I didn't ask for it. All right. Before we get into the interview, Kevin, uh, we start the program off because this is a money show. What's the best money decision you have ever made? Legitimate one, the legal one. I was earning revenue and just keeping it in, in the bank, you know, because I was too busy to deal with it. So right. I would just have liquid liquid assets sitting in bank and it was you know, pretty sizable assets. And then uh, my best decision was actually taking the time, finding a money management company to actually take that money, do certain types of investments on my behalf, but, you know, not where I have high risk. I could decide my risk and let them manage the money, um, which is better than sitting in the bank and losing value because of inflation. There you so go. I'd say that's a good decision. That's a very good decision. Okay. I love that. So let's get into um, kind of your background. You sure. were a hacker. No, wait no, a second. No, I'm still a hacker. You're still a hacker. But let's go back for a second. I don't think that we've had somebody who's been in jail yet. 
on your show? No. This so is I, a first. I, I, Are you a card carrying? Yeah, I have, I, 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 a I have a card, but my card is really cool. Because my business card is actually, it's a tool set. Can you can you tell me what those tools are? Uh, a, a pointy thing. It's a lockpick set. A lockpick set. So oh, lo- so this is great. Uh, so if you lock yourself out of your home or office, just like Kevin Mitnick, this? and we'll open the door for you. Okay. Now, Kevin, tell us a little bit about how you got here. Sure. So as a young boy, I was really fascinated with magic. I'd ride my bicycle to the magic shop, you know, after school on the weekends, and I'd watch these guys perform the tricks. And I, why I kept watching over and over and over because I always wanted to learn the secret, this, the forbidden knowledge, right? I was a prankster. So I met this kid in high school who could work magic with the phone. Okay. And he was able to do things like get my mom's unlisted number. And one of my favorite pranks was to change my friend's home phone to a pay phone. Oh, my God. So whenever his parents tried to make a call... Please deposit 25 cents, right? I love And that. then he'd call me all pissed off, you know, change it back, change it back. I'm going to get in trouble. And then I'd change it to a prison phone, collect calls only. Nice. Right? So I started on this route. And then I met this other student in high school, my junior year, who said, hey, man, you might be interested in computers. And so he introduces me to the computer science instructor. And, he, and the guy starts asking me lots of questions. Have you had physics? Have you had calculus? Are you a senior? And I didn't meet the prerequisites. So he says, I'm sorry, you can't come into my class yet until you meet these prerequisites. Then my friend goes, show Mr. Christ what you could do with the phone. Uh-huh. So I was able to get his unlisted number within seconds. There was a phone in the computer lab that used to dial in to the school system's computer. Yeah. And, he, and then he goes, I never could get the number on that. They won't give it to me. And I, and I simply dialed that secret number and got the number for him. And he was so impressed he says, no, I'm going to let you into class now. Did you go to college? Did you just like, no, what did I was, you do? I, I, I pretty much, I, I took the test to get out of high school because I was kind of bored. Mm-hmm. And then I went to junior college, mm-hmm. right? Then I got myself into trouble. Why? Right, hacking. So um, what I ended up doing is I got involved with hacking kind of like playing a video game. It was like an all-encompassing like kind of hobby. And to me, it was like solving the puzzle. You know, it was a game. It was all about the pursuit of knowledge the intellectual curiosity, the seduction adventure, and most of all, I could pull cool pranks. Okay. And then how'd you get caught and what did you what did you do to get caught and then what well, happened? Well, eventually I started hacking in first into, you know, companies that develop operating systems like DEC. Yeah. And then eventually started uh, uh, hacking into cell phone companies that develop cell phones like Motorola and Nokia. And what I was interested in was getting access to the inner firmware, mm-hmm. the, the code, so yeah. I could understand how it worked. It was never for the money. I was it, just going to yeah. say, so you weren't like hacking in and stealing someone's credit card no. information. You weren't going out and saying like, I'm just going to ring up credit card. I'm going to sell it to some Russian goon no, or whatever. No, because to me, that was like being a crook. Okay. Right? So how'd you get caught? Eventually, I hacked into this guy's system with this guy in Israel, a guy named Satomo Shimomura. Mm-hmm. And Shimomura was like an expert hacker. We thought he had source code to the Oki 900 cell phone, mm-hmm. but in fact, he was reverse engineering it. And then he went on a vigilante mission. Once he realized he was hacked, I became suspect number one. Uh-huh. And then he helped the FBI track me, and they tracked me through cell phones. What happened? So they arrested me. So it was kind of interesting because they found the apartment I was in, and I was really good at changing my appearance. So they actually showed my picture to the leasing office saying, do you know, does this guy look familiar? And nobody recognized me. And I just leased the apartment like three weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so what happened is I went to go work out at the gym. I get home. It's about 1.30 in the morning. This is on Valentine's Day, 1995. Oh, nice. I had this really bad gut feeling that something, you know, 
was turning in my gut. Like I, I felt like I was being watched. I felt very like something bad is going to happen, right? And so I decided just to walk outside, look in the uh, on the balcony, and just like scope out the apartment complex and just to see maybe I'm, I, I was just chalked it up. You know, I did it. I looked out. I went back inside. Oh, I'm just being paranoid, yeah. right? Well, 10 minutes later, knock, knock, knock at the door. And it was because the United States Marshal Service, who was also on the hunt, actually saw me go outside. Oh, God. So yeah. you, you so basically eventually bled I got for caught. yourself. Yeah. And how long did you have to – did you go to jail? Oh, yeah. They arrested how me. How long? Uh, I was in custody for five years. I was in solitary confinement for eight months because a federal prosecutor had told the judge during a bail hearing, we can't let Mr. Mitnick out on bond because he's a grave danger to national security. And furthermore, Your Honor – he went on to say, we have to make sure he can't get access to a phone in the jail. Uh-huh. Right? Because inmates are allowed to use phones. Right. Right? And the judge is, like, confused. Like, why, Mr. Prosecutor? Well, if Mr. Mitnick gets access to a phone, he could dial up to NORAD, whistle into the phone, communicate with their modems, and launch a nuclear weapon. There right? you go. And here I- you have the government saying I could whistle launch codes, right? I love that. Right? And I started laughing in court, like... Because that's so funny. Like, like I never heard of something so stupid. The judge wasn't laughing. No, I'm I was not. laughing, right? So, and they so, locked me up in solitary confinement for a year, almost a year. It was like eight and a half months based on this myth that I could whistle the launch codes. Okay. Do you come out reformed? Do you come out and say like, oh, my God, I really had crossed over? Do you feel convinced well, of that? Well, well what had happened is um, at the time I was pretty bitter against the U.S. government because – they made up a lot of things that simply weren't true. Mm. You know, maybe what you call it fake news mm-hmm, <laughs> nowadays, right? right. right. And um, when I was released from custody, I got a, a a letter from a guy named Fred Thompson, who was a senator and an actor. Yeah, right? I remember. And, and he R.I.P. was working I with. I think he's dead now. Yeah, dead. He, yeah. he was working with Joseph Lieberman. Yeah. And they invited me to go testify at, at Congress how the U.S. government could better protect their computer systems. So that's when. There was a change because I was arrested in 95. There was no internet, as we know today. When I was released in 2000, now you had Yahoo, right? Now you had uh, Amazon, right? So now you had companies doing commercial transactions over the internet, which didn't exist before. So now companies had a need for security. So naturally, you know, what I started thinking about is how can I take the skill set of, you know, what I used to do as a hobby and legitimize it. So now I get to do the same thing today. I hack into systems all the time. Right. Right. But I do it with my client's authorization. So companies hire me and my my team to hack into their systems physically, technically, by tricking their people and so on and so forth. And uh, and it's a way I earn a living. Now I do it for the money. I love it. Which is it. kind of funny. That's so and funny. So it's kind of like Pablo Escobar becoming a pharmacist. Right. Exactly. In your book, uh, in the introduction, one of the things you write is that if you know where to look, all of the information is available to just about anyone. And before we got on the show, he's like, you basically say to me, like, hey, let's put your name and I'll get your uh, social and telephone. Yeah, what people don't realize is there are databases that have your information that are that the information is sold uh, to subscribers. Usually a lot of these databases that contain your PII, your personal identifying information, usually go through some sort of vetting process. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the databases are still available. So within seconds, you can get somebody's social security number, their date of birth, where they've lived for the last 10 years, their phone numbers, their mother's maiden name, their driver's license number. And and people don't realize this. And what's interesting also in the book is that not only do people not realize it, but if they do realize it, then they say, who wants my stuff? 
I know that you're listening and you're like, oh, my God. So besides don't click on links that and, you know, like we always laugh about this, like in the financial services, because you think like, well, who would be so stupid to click on a link like the IRS is not right. The IRS is not sending you an email or a text message. And then you find out, like you said, third of people are clicking on these links. Thirty percent of employees do at companies that what we see, you know, when we're uh, doing uh, surveys with no before. So you also say passwords. You got to get a password generator. Well, password manager. A manager. What we recommend is people don't choose their passwords because they always choose bad passwords. Yeah. And they use patterns. They'll use the same password right. at least two different places. If they can't manage it in their in their mind's eye, it's impossible. So there are hosted password managers. There are local password managers, like free ones that you could download to your computer, like our password safe and key pass, K-E-E pass. Right. Uh, you could use one password in what I call offline mode where you're not using it in a hosted mode. And what that does, let's say you go to, to a website. Right. Um, and you're doing it for the first time. Okay. Uh, and you put in your password. The password manager pops up and saves it for you. And then whenever you go visit that site again in the future, it just automatically fills it in. And it's a random generated password. But how you don't do even know, have to think about but it. But how do I know that password safe and key pass aren't going to get hacked? Well, they'd have to break into your computer. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Kevin Mitnick, author of The Art of Invisibility, in just a second. As we talk about protecting yourself against hacking, another thing you may want to protect yourself against is yourself. Yeah, you. Because sometimes we really do dumb things in our financial lives. And one way to do that is to work with Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. The cool thing about Betterment is they've designed a service to help improve your long-term returns and to help you lower your taxes. Betterment takes advanced investment strategies, but the cool thing is they also use technology, and they deliver this service to more than 250,000 customers. Here's how it works. You go to Betterment.com, And you fill out a bunch of information. And from that information, Betterment makes tailored recommendations on decisions like how much to invest, how much risk to assume in your portfolio, and the type of investment account you should have. Unlike many of its competitors, Betterment offers low, transparent advisory fees. And everything they do is designed to lower taxes and increase returns. And if you're listening to this interview with Kevin Mitnick and you're kind of freaking out about what's going on and how easy it is to get your information, here's something else that Betterment does. They use the strongest browser encryption available and store all of their data on servers in a secure facility. Betterment also offers two-factor authentication. That's something Kevin says you need. And that provides a second layer of security beyond your password to access your Betterment account. Betterment charges one low transparent fee, and for a limited time, you can get up to six months managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. Betterment, rethink what your money can do. And now back to our interview with Kevin Mitnick. Let's get to encryption. Okay. Because... Whenever you write an email, no matter how inconsequential, even if you delete it from your inbox, remember there's an excellent chance that a copy of those words and images will be scanned and will live on. Maybe not forever, but for a good long while. So you say we need to encrypt messages. Does everyone need to do this? No. It it really depends on the sensitivity of the email. Like I only encrypt messages when it has 
proprietary information like uh, a like client I'm, stuff. Right, client stuff. We're talking a lot about you know emails, and I, I, I it occurs to me that a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast. They're a little bit younger. They don't live and die by the email. Uh, but they text like the crazy, time. right? Yeah. And their parents are texting with them. Um, talk a little bit about texting and what kind of precautions we can take to protect ourselves. Yeah, cer- certainly. Like when you send a text message through your mobile operator, whether it's ATT, T-Mobile, Sprint, or whomever, uh, they get a copy of it and they can read it, right? Um, there are certain types of devices called MC catchers that allow you know, a hacker, for example, to intercept your voice and data and text messages. Mm. So the only way to protect the security of your messages is by using what we call end-to-end encryption. What that means is you're using a program that encrypts your messages, but the the secret key exists only on your device. Okay. Like, for example, everyone knows about iMessage. Right. I use it. Right. You know, and the problem is it uses end-to-end encryption, but Apple has the key. So if oh. Apple is ever subpoenaed by the government or by a civil attorney, they could disclose your communications. Okay. Okay. Although, are they pushing back against that? I mean, is that what a lot of technology companies not, are doing? Not with or, a subpoena. No. Not with a subpoena, a they, can't, they can't tell. But what if, they were pushing back on was developing a program to basically break any iPhone. Right. right. That was the pushback. Right. But as far as communications, they do it, all, they, they do it you know, multiple times per day. Right. So to really protect your privacy, you need to use an application where the key only exists on your phone or your computer. And there's one out there that's very popular and that's been tested in the academic uh, area called Signal. And what it does is it allows you to make secure voice calls and also send secure text messages using what we call end-to-end encryption. So it makes it extremely difficult for an attacker to breach the confidentiality of your communications. Do you think that... So would if I use Signal... Will I slow down my my texting? Will it? No. Will there be? And there, I will. I will not notice a difference. No, you will not notice and, a difference. Nor it's will like, anyone it's like using. You know, WhatsApp is uh, implemented the Signal protocol, okay. right? Uh, which is part of Facebook. Problem is, is I don't trust Facebook. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, I would prefer just to use Signal by itself. But a lot of other companies that are big brands are are implementing Signal's protocols and processes in giving the public an opportunity to use secure communication. Is there, are there services like yours that, you know, you, you're dealing with big time, I know, like big companies, but are there services springing up for individuals to say, hey, can you do a security analysis and implement good stuff? And should you trust those kinds no. of things? In fact, that's why, that's what inspired me to write the book was really the revelations of Edward Snowden. Uh, when you know we all learned that our privacy was being violated and the government was breaking the law, and then I was more concerned about you know how easy is it to breach someone's privacy, not necessarily the government, and there was nothing out there. Hmm. So that's why I wrote Art of Invisibility to help the general guy on the street, general guy and gal on the street, understand what the threats are by telling stories about incidents that occurred and how to fix it. Like one of my favorite stories in the book is about a school district that was giving out MacBook Pros to their students. Right. Right, free. Right. You know, their $3,000 laptops, kind of cool. What they didn't tell the students or the parents is they infected the computers with malware to spy on the students. What? Yes. So one student was called to the principal's office because he was allegedly pill-popping. 
So when they started looking into this, well, how do you know that you know Jimmy's pill popping? Oh, we we turned on his webcam when he's at home and we're watching him. It turned out he was eating Mike and Ike's candy. It wasn't pill popping. Oh. So then they started doing an investigation and learned that the school district was spying on the students in their bedrooms. Oh, my God. In their bedrooms. Oh. They got, of course, they got sued, you know, big time. I guess I'm also wondering, in your mind, what is the big risk that people are taking every day that they don't know about? I think a lot of people do understand that your communication could be hacked. I, I think that there's been more and more information released. But what do you what do you think would really surprise most of our listeners? I don't about surprise, but when I'm testing companies, you know, because I have a company called Mitnick Security, and companies approach us to break in, right. right, and hack. The easiest way in is through social engineering, where we're able to use manipulation, deception, and influence to trick somebody into doing something like what they did with Sean Podesta, right? With you know, sending a phishing email. Uh, and when we're able to do, when a client allows us to use social engineering tradecraft in scope of a test, our success rate is 100%. Oh, my God. Right? So they so, find out a little bit about you. You find well, you out- do information you go, reconnaissance, right? Right. You, you go, go to Facebook. Facebook, Twitter, uh, my favorite on companies, LinkedIn. Yeah. Because now I could search on company name and just titles of people. Right, so I want to look for a system administrator. I could find I could find the database administrator. I could find the sales and marketing guy. Right, and what we try to do is determine the circle of trust. Right, who would they trust getting an email from where they would likely cooperate? Like open up the attachment uh-huh. or click the hyperlink, and we find that we are able to fool most employees, but it only takes one right to get into the company's network. And then once you're in the company's network. You can go out from there. Right. It's super easy for somebody to steal your identity. So what can you do about it? You can't really protect your social security number, your date of birth. Too many people have it. Right. But what you can do, at least from a financial perspective, a money perspective, is put go log into your bank account, log into your credit cards, mm-hmm. and put on an alert. Anytime there's a transaction over 10 bucks, send me a text message, send me an email. So that way, if somebody is misusing your your bank account or your credit card, you know right away. You know, a lot of people listening to this program do either banking or investment management online. Correct. How secure do you think financial services organizations are? I mean, I know they're spending a ton of money on security. Uh, Should you be worried about, you know, investing online or banking online? Well, personally, I have a bank account with a major bank and I won't do wires online because if you read the... um, The end user license agreement is what I'm going to call it. You know, I don't know what it is in banking terms. Basically, with doing wires, if my account is hacked and the bank determines it was my negligence, Mm. I lose. Right? Really? And I know how easy it is to break into somebody's bank account, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Or online uh, service. So I just go into the bank to do it, right? Uh, Because it's just way too risky. I'll take other risks, like on credit cards and that sort of thing, because it's very minimal. Mm -hmm. But for people doing stuff online, if you ever use an open wireless network, make sure you use VPN, mm-hmm. right? Install the HTTPS Everywhere extension so you're ensure that you're using uh, what they call secure sockets layer. So you'll see, like, hopefully a green bar showing that the, the site is secure. And always remember that no matter what we do, there's no s- software that exists yet that could eradicate, well, detect and eradicate malware. So there's always a potential that your computer is infected. Mm. with malware. And if it is, 
somebody could turn on the keylogger and get your get your password. So what do you do to make it a little bit more harder? Two-factor authentication. So I wouldn't use a financial services company out there online mm-hmm. unless they absolutely have two-factor authentication. And yeah. uh, by the way, if you're in an airport, don't make a trade in your account using the public Wi-Fi. Yeah, unless you're using VPN. Unless you're using VPN. Yeah. Kevin Mitnick, before we close, you ready for your final question? I'm ready. First of all, you're like dressed like Johnny Cash. You're all black. I kind of dig that. It's sort of like, it's like in the your... hacker black. Yeah, exactly. We talked in the beginning. We talked about the best money decision you ever made. Yes. What was the worst money decision you ever made? Worst money decision. I'm trying to think. Um, oh, okay. So this has to do with my case. So there was this New York Times reporter named John Markoff who uh, wrote this book, Takedown, about me that was a uh, 90% libelous. But I was in prison. So I really couldn't do anything until they decided they were going to make a motion picture, right? And then I hired a lawyer from custody in Los Angeles, and um, we ended up because the movie's production studio did not want to go to court. So we settled out of court. Okay. And I received a lump sum. And uh, what had happened is, uh, you know, I had my mom at the time, you know, handle the funds. And then it was a settlement, uh, basically uh, a damages settlement. And... uh, and then my mom, you know, being, you know, completely um, vigilant in obeying, you know, all tax rules, decides to send, you know, you know, 30% of that off to the IRS to pay the taxes on it. Well, it turned out later that the accountant told me, oh, you didn't need to pay tax on it. Those were damages. Oh, gosh. Right. And then I learned this three years later because don't forget I was in prison for five years. So when I get out, I learned that my mom sent this money to the IRS and it was a gift. And you couldn't get it back? Couldn't get it back because it's passed to three years. Oh, criminy. And I didn't get a credit for it. Darn it. So that was the worst decision, not that I made, but someone made on my behalf. All right. Kevin Mitnick, the author of The Art of Invisibility, the world's most famous hacker, teaches you how to be safe in the age of big brother and big data. Thank you so much for joining us on Better Off. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure being on your show. I hope to be on in the future. I hope that you don't hack into my computer and tell me how horrible everything is. No, I, I won't do that. Yeah, you Don't promise? Worry. Trust me. Do marks. Now, if your webcam turns on automatically, it wasn't me. Okay, got it. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for our favorite part of the show. It is the listener call of the week. If you would like to come on, all you have to do is send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And Mark will arrange to get you on the program. And remember, you get two shots at this. Tuesdays, we do the bonus call of the week. And then here on the longer show on Thursdays, you can also be a part of it. You're helping me. I'm not just helping you. I get to flex my certified financial planner muscles now that I'm the CFP board senior ambassador. It is coming up, by the way, Mark, on my almost 20-year anniversary of getting that designation. Mark has also just started the CFP process. So it's very exciting here. Okay. So let's go and take a call. It's Corey who's on the line from Arkansas. Hi, Corey. Welcome to Better Off. What's going on? Hey, Joe. I have a couple questions about investment allocation. Uh, first off, a background. I'm 22, just started the workforce eight months out of college, and really trying to make sure I prepare the most for my financial future. My first question would be about HSA investing. I am maxing out my annual contribution to my HSA, and I want to know at what point you thought I should invest those HSA funds, I was thinking that once I surpassed the maximum annual out-of-pocket 
expense for which I'm liable through my insurance plan, I would start investing. But I want to know your thoughts on that with regards to timing allocations and things like that. Yeah, I think that that's not a bad thing. I mean, obviously, for everyone else listening, health savings accounts, they're pretty cool. They're tax-favored um, accounts, and it allows you to pay for qualified medical expenses. And uh, you can you can invest it, I was going to say, any way you want, but not. It's, it's actually not that easy to find like a big, normal fund that you might have heard of to invest in. So where is the account held right now? Is it at a bank or an investment house? No, it's an investment house, and there are a couple different options. There's actually a lot more options than I expected. But one I was looking into was a essentially a retirement date fund uh, 40 years out, and it's I think it's in the single-digit expense fees. So it's, it's similar to a Vanguard fund. It's not exactly through Vanguard, but I think it's a 0.08% expense ratio. And yeah. You just put it heavily invest in stocks and obviously adjust that allocation over the course of the next 40 or so years. So I, I want to get your thoughts on that. I think that that's... Okay, so from the investment perspective, yes. Um, I, I'm just wondering, um, there's no like weird surgery. You didn't like blow your knee out or you need the money for... In other words, there's no extra money that you know you might need to access from this account yet, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. I'm a pretty healthy guy. I haven't had major any major operation. Uh, we're supposed to touch wood or something on that. Remember that now, okay? Uh, right. So, uh, I think that you pretty much have the the game plan here, which is you've got to have enough money uh, that's available, that's liquid, that's not at risk. Once you have that, I think keeping the investment options simple and obviously very low cost, that is where the power of the HSA comes in. And um, in my mind, I think that you know, if the only reason you would change that is again, if like you get the sense that I don't know, maybe you have um, an illness that, or you need medication that's not covered, or something's coming that essentially would require you to put a little extra money in cash. Just use your head. But otherwise, I love the I love the game plan, and I think HSAs are really great. And I just wonder, how did you know to start an HSA? Uh, I only ask because they don't get a ton of um, excitement, especially from a 20-something. Sure. Well, I've, I've read a lot on my own, and our employer actually offers an HSA. This is the first year they've offered an HSA. So once I looked into it, I realized there was really no reason not to, especially being so young with all the tax advantages and everything like that. That's great. So you've got a high deductible plan, right, through work and right. with an HSA. So what's the deductible, just out of curiosity? $1,300 deductible, $3,600 annual out-of-pocket maximum. Okay. So, you know, you're going to have to have some money set aside, and that's exactly what you're going to do. And after that, yeah, I love it. Low cost, target date, keep it simple. Cool. All right, man. Good luck. Thanks for calling. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. That's it. That's another episode of Better Off. Thanks again to Kevin Mitnick for joining us. He's a reformed hacker, now security expert. Thanks, Kevin. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.